Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is ABC News Daily. As we take a break this summer, we're looking back at some of our favourite episodes of the year that cover the issues that really mattered to you. Today, the Israel-Gaza war. Since the October 7 terrorist attacks by Hamas on Israel, we've brought you in-depth analysis and explainers about the conflict. After the attacks, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was quick to declare war. To help understand his response to the fighting, it's important to look to his past. So because he's a sitting Prime Minister with a criminal trial underway, he has been putting his personal and political needs first. But first, the world has been watching the Israel-Gaza war very closely. But can we always trust our eyes or ears? As you try to understand the conflict between Israel and Hamas, you'd be forgiven for being confused. There have been claims, counterclaims, misleading and false information. So how do you know what is real and what isn't at a time when social media messaging can be overpowering? We spoke to Kalina Koltai, senior researcher at the investigative journalist group Bellingcat, on how misinformation is spreading in the fog of war and what to do to avoid it. This story originally aired in October. Kalina, I think it's probably best for us to start with the case of the explosion at the hospital in Gaza on October the 17th. Yeah, it'll probably go down as a really wonderful case study of uh, how we just can't know anything right away. The missile hit the hospital not long after dark. A gruesome scene. Gazans searching for pieces of their loved ones. Initially, reports were claiming Israel or IDF was responsible for this explosion or maybe a missile being hit um, at this hospital. You know, it is hard to see what else this could be other than an Israeli airstrike or several airstrikes. But then later on, we started seeing claims that maybe Hamas was responsible, that it was a, a missile gone awry, like accidentally hitting it. Both sides in the conflict are blaming each other. The Israeli military says it was not their missile, but a failed rocket launch from Islamic Jihad terrorists. Footage we were trying to collect and archive was really poor because the blast happened at night. So we were looking at some footage that started being shared was actually old footage from 2002 or 2001. It's really difficult to geolocate and verify footage that's at night. And then as the day broke and we got more images and more video, we were able to start trying to put together pieces. But even now today, you know, we have a variety of different claims. I think, you know, depending on who you talk to, people have their own take on it. Mm -hmm. It's a storm of conflicting reports, analysis to like completely false and incorrect videos. That's all happening just around this, this one hospital blast. U.S. intelligence agencies did tell reporters a bit later that they had a high confidence it was not Israel that fired the rocket. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team. The U.K. intelligence is suggesting the same thing now, isn't it? 
Yes, those are what the agencies have said. And then I believe, though, if you look at some of the reports that have recently just come out, say from the New York Times, there is sometimes conflicting statements based on even like a, another news organization's analysis. So I think it, it's really tough because I think we want to be able to trust what a, a particular um, government agency says and who is responsible, and oftentimes we do. But when we have so much conflicting reports, it makes it harder. And I know the work that we do and what other open source research investigators try to do is try to come to that conclusion on our own based on what we see that's open and available on the internet. So that's one case, I suppose, where there was confusion in the hours after the explosion occurred. And as you say, there's still conjecture about what actually did happen. What other examples have we seen so far? Well, there is this case of a um, bombing that was at this uh, church in Gaza. We uh, were able to find that Actually, it wasn't true. We found that the church's Facebook page actually put out a statement saying they were not bombed. So there was this misinformation claim that the church was bombed. It was not bombed. And in fact, the missiles hit somewhere else. Within like a week later, that church then was actually hit. It's sometimes there's these claims that are not true at the time, like this church being hit, that later on do become true, which mm-hmm. even adds to the further confusion of like what is actually happening. course, we're living in a world of social media and fake news can spread quickly and widely, can't it? It can be spread deliberately. Just tell me about some of the examples you've been seeing on social media, on places like Twitter or X as it's now known or TikTok. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's been particularly telling is I've seen images and videos uh, that are actually from like the Syrian war and Syrian crisis or like or of Syrian children being injured and people uh, on both sides either attributing it to being look at the harm that's happened to Israeli citizens or here is the harm that's happened to Palestinians. And, and it is uh, can be a really confusing situation because you see a lot of recycled footage um, from other conflicts within the Middle East area mm-hmm. being reused to push a particular angle or a particular um, narrative that can affect the way that people think about Palestinians or think about Israelis. Mm-hmm. It can be damaging in, in a number of ways. Mm. So who's behind spreading these images and what's the motive of that? It's tough because sometimes it's really clear when there's like one particular like actor or a few like really big name accounts that we could say are pushing a particular narrative. But it's really hard to tell in a case like this because we have, um, if you look at a platform like X, the way that verification and accounts has drastically changed over the past year. So, you know, we used to add, add some sort of level of legitimacy or sort of a trustworthiness to uh, when an account has a blue check mark, which we can't really do nowadays. Like anyone with $8 can buy a blue check mark mm. and have their content elevated to the platform. When we think about the origins or who's pushing it, sometimes it's people we might recognize. Um, and sometimes they're completely anonymous accounts uh, that we don't know who they are. They don't use a real name. And it makes it tricky for us to figure out, is there a particular cause, a particular reason why these accounts, who we don't know owns them, mm. is pushing a particular bit of like misinformation or a particular bit of propaganda in one way or the other. So, Kalina, social media is 
clearly contributing to a huge misinformation problem. And there's a propaganda and a broader information war playing out, right? Hamas, the Palestinians and Israel all want support for their cause and they use information to try and win hearts and minds. Yes, absolutely. And I think it comes to this idea of like, uh, of propaganda, of hearts and minds. We know that elected and government officials can be swayed by propaganda because they're they're human just like the rest of us. So, you know, misinformation, disinformation can affect the people who are in positions of power to what funding they decide to give and what content they want to believe. And also that affects, you know, who who are their supporters? Who who are they saying this to and what of their their base is, is following? Mm. I think, you know, when in times of conflict like this and to be clear that the uh, conflict between Israel and Palestine and, and Gaza has been going on. It's not a brand new conflict, but certainly has been inflamed in, in the past uh, couple weeks. Uh, you know, there are really important sort of, I think, repercussions sometimes publicly, depending on which side you take. So taking a stance in this conflict, you know, you've seen reports of people sometimes losing their jobs because of a stance or because of a particular um, cause that they supported or maybe even something that they tweeted out on, on a or posted on a social media platform. So I think that public opinion is really critical when we think about uh, support of organizations, businesses, governments in a time of conflict like this. Kalina, what's your advice then to people online, either on social media or traditional media for that matter? How can we know what's real? You know, that's a great question. I <laughs> I find that I have to like often guide my friends, my family, my loved ones in this. And there isn't really always a perfect answer. The best advice I can give is sometimes to particularly take a breath. I find that, you know, for us to find the answers to something, those answers sometimes take a while. There's something called a data void. And so when a conflict or something breaking news happens, there's a lot we don't know. And so we're, we're devoid of that, of that data, that information. And so misinformation and misleading narratives and misleading claims likes to fill that space until we actually know what's going on. And sometimes that takes time. And not only that, I, I recommend to people to look to different sources, mm -hmm. see how is the same event, the same incident being reported on by a variety of different outlets. Because sometimes, you know, maybe one place gets it wrong, but the odds that like many places get it wrong um, decreases. So it's it's that combination of, of checking your sources, checking multiple sources and, and being okay with sometimes we don't know until until later. Kalina Koltai is a senior researcher at Bellingcat, an investigative journalist group. While Benjamin Netanyahu oversees the war in Gaza, he's governing a traumatised nation, questioning why the terrorist attack by Hamas came without warning on October the 7th. Before the attack, the Israeli leader was under huge political pressure over domestic issues. But were there decisions he made that may have increased the risk? We spoke to Guy Ziv from the American University's Centre for Israel Studies on how long Netanyahu will be able to hold on to power. This story originally aired in November. 
Guy, we're going to discuss the leadership and history of Benjamin Netanyahu, also known, of course, as Bibi. He's Israel's longest-serving prime minister. He's been in power for nearly 16 years, such a long time. But in recent years, he's come across quite a bit of trouble, hasn't he, to the extent that there are criminal charges against him. So in recent years, the key problem that he's faced are all of these distractions, what one might call distractions. So first of all, there is, as you point out, a criminal trial. And because of the criminal trial, he was indicted in 2019 with fraud, breach of trust and accepting bribes in three separate scandals. It's alleged he requested and received lavish gifts from Australian businessman James Packer and Hollywood film producer Arnon Milchan, giving Mr Milchan favours in return. In the most serious case, it's claimed the Prime Minister pushed through beneficial laws for Israel's biggest telecommunications company in exchange for positive media coverage. So because he's a sitting Prime Minister with a criminal trial underway, he has been putting his personal and political needs first and has been consumed, of course, with the trial. Then, in order for him to establish the current government after he won the elections last year, the only way he could do so was to establish a far-right and religious government because those were the only coalition partners who'd be willing to sit with a prime minister who's under indictment. That resulted in the judicial overhaul agenda. And uh, you may recall that shortly after he formed this government in December, you had massive weekly demonstrations. And it really tore society apart because Israelis, including some of his own supporters, some of his own voters, felt that the idea of weakening the Supreme Court was going to lead to the demise of Israeli democracy. Myself, my kids and my grandkids losing the hope to live here in a democratic state. It scares me that we're still a few hours away from turning from a democracy to a dictatorship. So Benjamin Netanyahu, to stay in power, went to the lengths of forming a far-right coalition, so a far-right government that wanted far-right judicial reform, laws that would mean Israel's Supreme Court would be unable to reverse any decisions made by the government. People didn't like that. We saw huge demonstrations across Israel. That's right. That resulted in thousands of reservists from the Israel Defense Forces, from the IDF, including many from elite units and special forces, to announce that they're going to stop their volunteer service as long as his government pursues the judicial overhaul. And so this harmed the IDF's morale, its cohesion, its operational readiness, and senior members of the security establishment warned him, warned Netanyahu, that this was going to really impair Israel's ability to defend itself in case uh, other parties or other countries or other non-state actors in this case uh, were going to try to exploit this weakness and, of course, exploit it, they did. So what you're saying is that political turmoil we discussed played in to the lead-up to the terrorist attack and then this war. Yes, I think it played a role. 
And what does it mean for negotiations for peace, for a two-state solution that is an independent state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel? Is that something Netanyahu actually wants? Apparently not. Uh Uh, Netanyahu did, uh, under heavy international pressure, in particular pressure from uh, then-President Barack Obama, in June of 2009, uh, he announced he now supported the two-state solution. In my vision of peace, in this small land of ours, two free peoples live side by side in amity and mutual respect. Each will have its own flag, its own national anthem, and its own government. Neither will threaten the security or survival of the other. These two realities... So this was kind of a, a very public announcement. It got a lot of attention, but shortly after that announcement, he began to put all sorts of obstacles along the way. And his idea in general has been to manage the conflict rather than trying to resolve it. Mm-hmm. And so he really believed that he was fully capable of kind of kicking the can down the road on the two-state solution. One of his failed strategies was to weaken Mahmoud Abbas, who's the, the president of the Palestinian Authority, And by weakening Abbas and strengthening Hamas in Gaza, he felt that this helped him to kick the can down the road on the two-state solution, that Mm -hmm. there would be less pressure to go ahead and and, and do that since Hamas, of course, uh, rejects any sort of accommodation with Israel. It rejects the two-state solution or any other solution. Okay, so hang on. Just so I've got what you're saying right, he may have wanted Netanyahu, Hamas, to remain in power in Gaza to kill off any sort of negotiation with Palestinian leaders. That's right. So he actually tolerated Hamas attacks over the years that, uh, that traumatized Israelis in the South and uh, just felt that he could bypass, really bypass the Palestinian issue altogether um, by forging normalization agreements with the Arab countries, with uh, the kind of so-called moderate Sunni Arab regimes like the UAE and Bahrain, Morocco, and he was hoping for uh, Saudi Arabia next. Mm. And now, of course, he's leading a war. Tell me what happens when this war ends. How likely is it then that Netanyahu's political career continues or will it end with the war? I think it'll end with the war. The problem is we don't know when the war will end. We don't know how it will end. We don't know if it's going to spread into a broader regional war. I think it's easier to say that Netanyahu's days are probably numbered. I think there'll be some reckoning after the war is over. Guy Ziv is an associate professor in the School of International Services at the American University and Associate Director of the University's Centre for Israel Studies. As the Israel-Gaza war evolved, huge protests broke out across the world and in some cases turned violent. Reports of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia also increased here in Australia. In this episode, we spoke to Greg Barton from the Global Islamic Politics Centre at Deakin Uni on why the war is fueling a divide the Hamas terrorists would have hoped for. 
This story originally aired in November. Greg, since the October the 7th terrorist attack, we've seen growing protests on the streets in big cities around the world. Free, free, Palestine! 300,000 people turned out in London. We've seen huge protests across America and we've had big protests here too, haven't we? We have. I mean, this is this is one of those rare moments in history when the whole planet is concerned about something and, and, and turning up to say something's got to change. One of our great democratic rights is to protest, but we have seen some violence, including at a protest in Caulfield in Melbourne's southeast when a pro-Palestinian rally was held in an area with a large Jewish population. It was pretty concerning to see what happened there. That's right, and, and, and the protest organisers subsequently said they recognised it was a mistake to organise the protest in that location. It was not wise because they opened themselves up to these opportunistic outsiders coming in and causing trouble. And, and, and just for people with really charged emotions doing things which is not helping their cause. It came after a burger restaurant owned by a Palestinian Australian man was destroyed in a firebombing. Some pro-Israel supporters had turned up there too, although police say there's currently no evidence suggesting the firebombing was politically or racially motivated. We can tell from, from the situation there that this is a really, really sensitive time. Yeah, we're dealing broadly with, with two communities who are directly affected by what's happening at the moment and both have these primordial senses of horrific memories for Jewish People, whether directly or indirectly connected, uh, there's this collective memory of the Holocaust. For Palestinians, there's a collective memory of the of the Nakba, of being forced from their homes and, and the world being destroyed. The Muslim community globally is around 2 billion people. So that's, uh, you know, a quarter of the planet. Of course, the Jewish community is is much, much smaller, but it's it's... Uh, dispersed throughout the world, half living in Israel, the other half living in largely in Western democracies, particularly North America and, and the UK and significant community in Australia. And both sets of communities having these memories of horror and a feeling that the history is repeating itself and that something has to be done to stop that repetition of past horror. It's supercharged. And for other people, um, most people turning up at rallies, uh, there's not that direct connection, but they're, they're seeing through social media and, and um, video feeds horrible suffering um, day on day, week on week, and feeling that this can't go on, it has to stop. All right, well, David Southwick, the MP representing Caulfield, he's really worried about anti-Jewish sentiment. Uh, that really did um, signal to the community that, hey, we're not even safe in our own backyard. And I've got to say at the moment, as a Jew, and I think that I, I never th- thought that I would ever say this, that it is really tough to be a Jew at the moment. It's not that common, is it, to see protests of this size, to see emotions run so high? Well, in most respects, we're, we're back to 9-11, back in 2001 after the Al-Qaeda terrorist attacks. And, of course, that was, that was horrific and, and, and the, the, the global community responded with a sense of outrage at the terrorist acts and, and the victims in the US. 
But then as military actions began in Afghanistan, and particularly as we tipped through 2002 into 2003, there was increasing talk of invading Iraq, toppling the regime of Saddam Hussein. For reasons that were never clear at the time, were justified in terms of weapons of mass destruction allegedly present. Uh, some said this was to stop al-Qaeda having a presence in Iraq. As it turned out, the invasion opened the space for al-Qaeda, which became ISIS. Uh, and we saw massive protests at the time saying, let's, let's not carry out a military operation in Iraq. It makes no sense. It's not helping. Police say it was one of Australia's biggest rallies. So great were the numbers that it took two hours after the procession began for those at the back to start moving. That was the biggest sort of spontaneous eruption of protest since perhaps the, the, the Vietnam War. And we saw similar protest against what was then seen to be senseless violence and horrible loss of civilian life. So we're, we're back in these sort of, you know, once in several decades moment when people say, this is madness, it can't make any sense. We have to stand up and, and speak out so that it stops. Greg, let's discuss the risks that come with this. ASIO, the intelligence body, has warned there is a heightened risk of violence. What would it be considering at this time? What would be its biggest concern right now? The, the primary concern is not hundreds of people in the street per se, mm -hmm. but a small number, dozens of people perhaps. There's a particular concern about neo-Nazis and, and other people associated with the far right. Well, and of course, uh, neo-Nazis tend to be consistently anti-Semitic, but there's the potential for, you know, across the political spectrum, people acting in the name of defending Israel. And of course, we've had half a century of terrorism justified in the name of defending the people of Palestine, um, you know, generally cynically and opportunistically. So there's, there's precedence for this, um, but we are talking about a small number of opportunistic extremists, not genuinely concerned about uh, broad human suffering, Palestinian cause or Israel, but just seeing a chance for mischief. So I guess the question is how do governments at a state and federal level ensure we don't end up with the violence that ASIO is concerned about or some sort of, you know, civil unrest, remembering, of course, that the protests so far have been really peaceful? Well, I think the first thing is to remember that, that these, these peaceful protests are part and parcel of an open society mm -hmm. and, and, and need to be defended. If we try and repress people's concerns, we end up with something much worse. Secondly, uh, and we've seen this with comments from police and agencies, working with protest organisers, it's generally possible to minimise risk and de-conflict. I mean, the protest organisers are protesting, for, in, by and large, protesting for peace. They don't, they don't want trouble uh, and they don't want their cause discredited. Uh, so being wise about working together to try and avoid, at least minimise the space for opportunistic outsiders to come in and cause trouble goes a long way to minimising the risk. Well, ASIO is obviously concerned, but Greg, how worried do you think we should be as this war goes on? Not only, of course, about what we're seeing in this war, but what's happening here, the effect it's having on Australians? I think we need to take this really, really seriously because the, the worst case scenarios are, are truly horrible. So anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Jewish hate acts have increased, but also Islamophobic hate acts have increased. So if you're wearing a hijab and are visibly Muslim, 
There are many, many cases of people reporting uh, increased hostility, and that's just unacceptable. And, and our political leaders um, across the spectrum are calling this out, and that's important, just speaking it, about it and, and identifying its importance. Uh, we saw how the 9-11 attacks and our response to them changed the world and did a lot of damage, much of it which was caused by responses which we where we didn't anticipate the consequences. I, I think there's a growing sense of lack of confidence in, in Western democracy and Western democratic leadership, and that's disastrous because if we lose that sense of trust, it, it's going to be very hard to work together to find solutions. This is a, a, a really sort of critical point. Of course, in terms of military operations, it's all too possible that what's largely confined to the Gaza Strip could become a regional conflagration, and then, well, then the results are, 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 are truly horrible. But even leaving that aside, just the possibility of uh, extremist elements acting in small groups to, to carry out violent attacks is an immediate consequence in itself. It's a really critical juncture. Mm, do you think we've learnt anything from nine eleven? I think we have, but we sort of have to hang on to that, that lesson. The, the lesson from 9-11 is that terrorists only have real effect when they can provoke a response to d divide, to, to drive a wedge. What was Hamas trying to achieve with that provocative terrorist attack on October 7? What response did they want um, and what are we giving them? And I think the danger is that we're giving them exactly what they want. They, they want us to react with anger in a way which drives a wedge through communities and strengthens a cycle of recruitment so that even if they lose a large number of their force strength, they end up recruiting a new generation. I think we recognise this. People who follow these events understand this. And yet we're in danger of having this pushed aside in, in just a rush of emotion. Greg Barton is the chair of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University. That's it for this special episode of ABC News Daily. The podcast will be back with new episodes daily from the 29th of January. Follow the show on the ABC Listen app.